On this episode of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, we review the latest news and information from the ASC industry, discuss COVID-19 vaccinations, review recent guidance from CMS on emergency preparedness, and in our focus segment, prepare you for Medicare quality reporting in May 2021. Welcome to the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, the longest-running podcast specifically focused on the freestanding ambulatory surgery industry. This episode is sponsored by Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies. The ASC regulatory environment is increasingly challenging, but organizations that outsource their regulatory oversight to Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies have an edge. HS works with ASCs to oversee their quality improvement program, run their meetings, develop educational programs, and always be prepared for surveys. For more information or to schedule a consultation, visit our website at ah-strategies.com, email us at info at ah-strategies.com, or call John Gailey directly at 585-594-1167. Welcome to episode 128 of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey for April 18th, 2021, recording from our studios in Spencerport, New York. This is Susan Cronkite, Chief Researcher for the ASC Podcast with John Gailey and Senior Nurse Consultant for Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies. Joining me is John Gailey, the owner of Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies and recognized as one of the nation's leading experts in the ambulatory surgery industry. Mr. Gailey is the author of over 10 books on the ASC industry and a frequent industry speaker on regulatory accreditation and finance issues. And that was take 127, I, I believe. <laughs> We're a little bit out of practice. <laughs> yeah, we. Uh, this is our first episode in um, a month. Not for lack of trying, it's just that we've had a, a lot going on. Of course, we, we always say that, but uh, it has been a very busy time. And, and then uh, when we fired up the studio, even though we use the studio for other purposes, uh, nothing worked. So, yep. So, had to reset or, or I had to reinstall software. Yeah, I mean we we're having a lot of fun here, especially since I really truly don't know what I'm doing with all this equipment in here. <laughs> I kind of wing You're it. Learning, I know. So as I said, we're uh, we we have been falling behind, and for that we apologize. Uh, there has been a lot going on. It's been a very busy spring. Uh, there's a lot going on in the industry. When we put together this, we've been writing the script for a week now, actually, and then Sue and and I about two hours ago decided that there's no way that we could subject our listeners to the approximate two hours that we would go (laughs) through this material. So we're actually going to try something new. We're going to kind of record two episodes at once Mm -hmm. uh, today. It's uh, Friday, Friday the 16th, I think, something like that. And then uh, we'll we'll spread this out over a couple weeks and hopefully make the episodes uh, not so long. Uh, Happy spring, everyone. Um, When we originally started putting together the script, uh, it was just after Easter. So my script says here, happy spring. Hope everyone had a good holiday. So I'm assuming that everybody did. It's well past that now. Uh, we were able to bring all the kids together, uh, not all at the uh-huh. same time, but we uh, we were able to see all the grandchildren and we're all vaccinated now. So now we don't have to wear masks uh, during the time. It's been, been yeah, great. It's been very nice. So uh, congratulations to our newest center at Amateur Healthcare Strategies, Queen's Surgical Center in Flushing, New York. Um, achieved its uh, Medicare certification, a uh, very successful survey. And Sue, I, I think you saw there was not a single health citation. 
mm-hmm. for that center. They had some life safety things that they had yeah, to deal with, really but they survey. always do. You know, there's yeah. always something that's going on. But very successful survey and a fantastic team down there. Congratulations to uh, to Jem and Neverly there and and all the, the, the great people that we've uh, had the pleasure of working with over the last couple of years as we get them up and running. Uh, we have a couple other centers coming online. We'll uh, keep you updated as they come online. We've also been doing a lot of work in office-based surgery centers lately. So um, it's been, um, as I think we've said, the business, our ambulatory healthcare strategies has doubled in size over the past year. Mm-hmm. And uh, we have some uh, exciting news coming up when we bring on some more people. So uh, a lot, a lot happening. And every phone call you get, I swear. Oh, I know. <laughs> four. There's more people <laughs> looking. When it, when four it centers just called in the last 48 hours mm-hmm. looking, or four doctors looking to develop surgery centers. So. It's yeah. been, uh, I mean, I guess it bodes well mm-hmm. for the uh, the, medic, uh, the medical community right now. And I think in, in talking to a number of these doctors, uh, they are doctors that are coming from hospitals in many cases uh, who are, you know, frustrated with what's going on. And, of course, a lot of, a lot of uh, post-COVID, I think people are very leery about going back to hospitals now, you know, for elective surgery. And uh, I think that is going to be spearing uh, quite a bit of growth over the next, uh, well, next year or so. So let's uh, talk about some recent news. There's a lot going on. We hesitated to talk about vaccines because uh-huh. uh, it changes by the day. So uh, as we are recording this, on, is it the 16th? Did you look? It is, yeah. Is that 16th? Okay. Uh, as we, uh, we we probably have to t- date stamp mm-hmm. all these things. So, uh, Sue, can you give us an update on the uh, vaccines and what it means to us in the industry uh, as of April 16th, 2021? <laughs> well, this is really, it's, it's kind of specific because I'm going to talk about the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, but I think in general, and John, you know, feel free to jump in at all, because um, we've had so many discussions about this of just people aren't getting always the real facts. Everything yeah. now, it seems like in the news, and, you know, and I told John I'm going to get up on my soapbox, and I don't That's fine. Much, That's but, fine. Yeah. You know, everything is so alarming that you hear, and you really have to delve in a little bit more to really get the facts. So just as an example, so Johnson & Johnson, um, you know, they've decided to to pause the Johnson & Johnson vaccine for a short time because there have been six cases of a rare blood clot, and, and they were all in women under 50 who had received the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. But you have to remember there have been around 7 million doses given, which include about 1 million given to this demographic of young women, so the ones that seem to be affected. Um, one of the six women has died, and one is in critical condition. And the others are either still in the hospital or some have been discharged and are recovered. So the CDC and the FDA have recommended pausing the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. And basically, part of the reason why they're doing that is to be sure the medical professionals know what to look for and how to treat this. Um, because this particular disorder causes both blood clots and low platelets. So you don't want to treat it with heparin like you would, like you may some other blood clots. Um, and the warning signs are a severe headache, abdominal pain, leg pain, and shortness of breath that happen within three weeks after the vaccination. Because I know people that have gotten the vaccine yeah. um, are a little bit nervous. And, and really, if you're past that three weeks, you don't have to worry about it. And regardless that, you know, like I said, 7 million people have gotten it and there have been six cases. Yeah. And you have to remember, one in 1,000 women who take birth control pills will experience a blood clot. Um, 2.6 per yeah. million will die in a bicycle accident. And 12 people will be killed in a car crash 
for over 100,000 vehicles on the road. So, you know, just to put that in perspective, yeah. and you don't hear that every day, like, don't get in your car because it's dangerous. Right. But, you know, all of a sudden there's all this news about the vaccine. So, And um, you've actually scared the heck out of me because I drive so much that I know. <laughs> there, there is more of a chance of me dying in a car accident there than there is of dying from the vaccine. Mm-hmm. So let's put that yes. uh, uh, in perspective. Yes. Um, so, and then there's also those reports we started hearing. I saw it started seeing on Facebook some anti-vaxxers. Yeah. We're putting this on there. Um, reports of fully vaccinated people that were testing positive. And three of those people, I believe this was in Michigan, the specific group, um, had died. But, you know, there's no question that the vaccine is highly protective. We don't know if the people in this case just maybe took a bit longer to reach full immune response because that can happen. Right. Um, maybe they were taking medication that, compre- that compromised their immune system or they had some type of an illness that affected their immune response. Um, you know, we don't know. I mean, for all we know, this cluster might have been caused by maybe there was a batch of vaccine that wasn't properly stored. I mean, we just don't know, but they don't seem to ever look into that. You just hear these yeah. headlines and, you know, people get nervous, but it, it's a whole lot safer to get it for the most part. Um you know, so we just don't ever seem to get the details. So it's definitely a personal decision, but I just think if people base their decision on the really knowing the risk and benefit rather than just seeing these scary headlines, we'd be so much better. And in a lot of cases, not just the vaccine, you know, I think we've gotten the news people have gotten away from giving us the facts and just kind of want to sensationalize things. Yeah. Well, and, and we also know that unfortunately um, there's censorship. I mean, even we mm-hmm. in the podcast industry had to be very careful about the way we word things mm-hmm. uh, for fear of, of censorship. If I use the wrong phrase, phraseology, I'm being monitored all the time. We are both being monitored. Uh, the headlines that we put into the, you know, the titles we put into mm-hmm. our things, uh, you can get banned without anybody really seriously listening to what's going on. And yeah. the problem with that is the people that are doing the banning are not healthcare professionals. They're mm-hmm. you know they're people that you know watch the the new yeah. news yeah. and probably get you know poor information. Well, so even that. and we saw that on Z Dog and, and right. Doctor True were talking about it and yeah. you know it's just you may have a different opinion than them, but you know to to yeah. be trying to make that judgment on on medical things when you're not a medical person. Yeah. and even if you did different doctors, you know that a whole lot of that give and take and discussion. Um, and risk taking used to be the way that they would find new treatments right. or let the arguments. Through. And now people are yeah. so afraid to say something that's going to get shut down by you know Facebook or something. It's just it's yeah, crazy. yeah. And it really bothers me that these are non medical people that are making these decisions. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, I think some of them are political in nature, and and that shouldn't be happening in the healthcare field. This is uh, you know this is a scientific community, and we should be. Uh, um, you know, respecting the the scientific process here, and uh, you're right, and and put these deaths in perspective. You and I are big advocates of of vaccination. Right. I know there are people, and I do respect. I respect yeah. the opinion of the people that have differences, and and I I certainly recognize that there are circumstances under which you might decide not to be vaccinated, uh, but definitely consider it. This is this is an. I mean, consider this in um, in in the depth of the 
of the pandemic in mm-hmm. you know April or May of 2020, people were saying there were people out there saying we can do get a vaccine by November, and they were laughed at, yeah. and and we did it, and 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 that's due to the dedication of the uh, the medical community, the, the um, uh, you know great researchers out there who I, I don't understand this. You've explained it to me a little bit, but I understand that in the process of putting together this vaccination, they've invented new ways of doing things that will yeah. probably have um, a huge impact in the future in all vaccinations. Mm-hmm. Um, and That's the thing, knowing the facts. So, you know, if somebody looked into all this and they really saw how it was done and they just thought, you know, it's not for me, or with the Johnson & Johnson, if I was, not that I'm not a young woman, but if I was... <laughs> You're 29. <laughs> I, you, you keep telling me. Since <laughs> I'm under 50. Um, you know, and maybe it was taking birth control pills or something, which would increase my risk of a blood clot. You know, maybe I would decide to just go with a different vaccine. But then you're basing it on some type of facts. It's still a right. wildly, you know, low chance. But, yeah. you know, people that are just like, no, there's something crazy. You know, I, I read something that we're... They're changing our DNA so that we're all going to be patented, all of us people. So, you know, if you're basing it on that, I'm sorry. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That, that's a little bit far out there, I think. But Well, I and, I, you know, so I hope everybody put it in. Probably everybody tuned out by now, but, but hopefully you uh, you get our point. And again, encouraging people. So one of the questions, I did want to segue into this a little bit. One of the questions that's been asked of me frequently is, are we going to, and I think we've even mentioned it before, but it's good to reiterate it. Uh, the question is, are is it going to? Are you going to be mandated? In other words, are healthcare professionals going to be mandated to take the vaccination? I do not see that happening. However, you as an employer uh, might decide to tell employees that you know, as a condition of of employment or a condition of taking care of patients in a direct care uh, way, uh, you have to um, uh, get the vaccination. Or like in New York, um, in uh, you know, for many years they've had this policy that if you don't get the flu vaccine, you have to wear a mask all the time. Once the flu, yeah, once flu season has declared. been declared. Maybe yeah. they'll have a regular testing schedule. I mean, I think these things will all work themselves out. Yeah. But, but stay on top of it. And, of course, we will keep you on, on top of things uh, here uh, at the podcast as we learn more about it. Um, okay, on to other news. Uh, recoupment of Medicare accelerated and advanced payments has begun. So just a reminder that uh, during uh, the pandemic, the height of the pandemic, Medicare uh, released um, – uh, additional payments or, or advance payments, in other words, paid uh, facilities uh, early for uh, Medicare, uh, expected Medicare payments. And uh, uh, now that uh, the time has come for those accelerated and advance payments to be recouped, uh, ASC should ensure that their billing staff are aware that the recovery began on March 30th, 2021. So, and recoupment is triggered by the one-year anniversary of the first uh, CAAP uh, payment, uh, which is, uh, by the way, that stands for um, accelerated advance payments. So uh, the recoupment will appear as an adjustment on the provider level balance section of the remittance advice. And beginning one year from the date CMS issued the cap and continuing for 11 months, CMS will recover the cap for Medicare payments due to providers and suppliers at a rate of 25%. After the end of the 11-month period, CMS will continue to recover remaining cap from Medicare payments due to providers and suppliers at a rate of 50% for six months. In other words, 50, uh, 25%. For, for right now, we're in the phase where they're recovering 25 
25% or taking up to 25% of your Medicare reimbursement to pay back the, the Medicare cap. Uh, after the end of the six-month period, your uh, Medicare administrative contractor or the MAC will issue you a demand letter for full repayment of any remaining balance of the cap. If the CMS does not receive payment within 30 days of that notice, interest will accrue at a rate of 4% from the date your MAC issues you the demand letter. After that, CMS will assess interest for each of the full 30-day period that the balance remains unpaid. So uh, just be prepared for that. If you are uh, uh, an administrator, just make sure you pass that on to your billing staff so that they are aware of what that uh, that uh, number is on the on the bottom of that and account for it properly. Um, we did get a updated guidance for emergency preparedness. Uh, this was an addendum to Appendix Z of the State Operation Manual, the SOM. And this is a memo QSO-21-15 all. Uh, we will make a reference to it in our uh, in the podcast notes here. Uh, so you might remember that in 2019, the Trump administration issued uh, regulatory provisions to promote program efficiency, transparency, and burden reduction. And uh, the final rule was uh, issued at that time, which had a number of provisions, uh, primarily in the uh, emergency preparedness area. At that time, it was just uh, the regulations. Now we have the guidance from CMS. And uh, there's there's a lot of, uh, of uh, information out there. We're going to provide references to it. Uh, we're going to go through some of the more important things. But without going into further details about the Burden Reduction Act itself, I did want to point out that there were a couple things that were added in the final guidance that really came out of uh, the uh, the pandemic, and that is a section on emerging infectious diseases. And this is what CMS said as part of this guidance. As facilities develop or make uh, revisions to their emergency preparedness plan, emerging infection diseases, EIDs, are a potential threat which can impact the operations and continuity of care within the healthcare setting and should be considered. So what CMS is saying is that when we originally issued this guidance in 2019, it was before the pandemic, and yet, and then after uh, uh, the pandemic, we learned a lot of lessons, and uh, they felt it necessary to use that those lessons to uh, further modify the guidance here. So, the type of infectious diseases to consider. Uh, or the care-related emergencies that are a result of infection, uh, infectious diseases, diseases are not specified in the uh, in the guidance. Adding EIDs within a facility's risk assessment ensures that facilities consider having infection prevention personnel involved in the planning, development, and revisions to the emergency preparedness program, as these individuals likely be coordinating activities within the facility during a potential surge of patients. And they provided some examples of the emerging infectious diseases, uh, which would include, but uh, of course, are not limited to potential infectious biohazardous waste, bioterrorism, pandemic flu, and of course, highly communicable diseases such as Ebola, Zika virus, SARS, or novel uh, COVID-19 or SARS-CoV-2. So um, it's important here. I think when we – so when we were in 2019 when this guidance came out um, – we didn't spend a lot of time bringing infectious disease experts into it, you know, like our infectious infection control coordinator, uh, because I think we were in contemplating other types of emergencies. And we joked that, you know, back when we were developing emergency programs, 
infectious diseases were not one of those things that we expected to be at the top of the list. Mm-hmm. Uh, as a matter of fact, we uh, we also joked that you know we spent a lot of time talking about active shooter, which is not at all funny, uh, but it was something that we thought as a result of all the shootings that had been occurring and and uh, incidents in healthcare organizations, that's something that we needed to train anybody on. But we didn't really have any mechanisms in place for um, for a pandemic, and certainly if we did even have those processes in place, we didn't predict what actually happened here. Mm-hmm. Um, and and to that end, one of the things that they brought out uh, in this guidance is the issue of emergency staffing. And this is what they went on to say. Emergency staffing strategy, policies, and procedures should outline how the facility would ensure healthcare professionals used for emergency staffing are credentialed, licensed as applicable, or able to provide medical support within the facility in accordance with any state and federal laws. And what they were referring to here is that during the pandemic, sometimes hospitals were coming to us and saying, uh, or, or doctors were coming to us and saying, hey, listen, we need to get um, uh, we need to be able to do some surgery. Uh, how can we rapidly get uh, our doctors credentialed in your organization? And many of your organizations stepped up and and certainly pushed things through. And, um, what what they're suggesting here is have processes in place in your organization uh, and be ready. Uh, to be able to credential people quickly, mm-hmm. uh, be ready to have personnel perhaps other than the normal credentialing personnel be able to do this credentialing. Say that, uh, you know, like in a pandemic situation, maybe your credentialing person is out and that's the only person who knows how to do credentialing. Have processes in place in your emergency plan mm-hmm. so that uh, somebody else can do that or they can rapidly figure out where all that information mm-hmm. is and how to pull it together. Yeah. And I think that we've talked before about cross-training a little bit. And I think that can come in handy in any kind of situation like this. Don't don't have there be just one person in your facility that knows really any role. Right. It, and it's also important here as just kind of a segue on the whole issue of personnel during this time is we, we know that a lot of people were pulled out of surgery centers or had to quit because their, um, their children, you know, they had to become caregivers in their home or had to take care of their family members, you know, who might have been sick, which very rapidly depleted our resources. And, and to your point, that meant that we were working on a shoestring, you know, staff. And, uh, we, uh, so, it, and, and perhaps individuals were working in areas that they weren't used to working in before. So develop emergency procedures to be able to identify how you would react to that. And also start talking about how you would recruit other individuals, where you might go for those individuals. Uh, some of you had to pull upon, uh, you know, nurses that were from out of state, uh, that were willing to come to the state to, uh, to work. Uh, and how would you develop those, uh, those processes? So, um, um, I think this is this was a great tool, and I'm going to uh, to make sure there's reference to it. I'm, I'm sitting here talking, and our puppy came into the studio here and is uh, wanting some attention here. She says, "I am uh, available to assist any surgery center if they need some additional help." She wants to be sure we have policies in place. <laughs> That's right. Dog food and toys are available. Right. Um. Sequestration. Um, so Sue, when she saw this, said, what is sequestration? Because nurses have probably never heard of this. But uh, th- this is I, – I, I find humor in this because I, 
I'm an accountant and we have a weird way of finding humor in anything. But many years ago, uh, I think it was during the um, Obama administration, uh, there was a budget crisis. And as a result of that, there were they were having a hard time uh, settling on a, on a final budget. So as part of um, the, the budget process there, they implemented what, what, what was called uh, sequestration. It was a 2% cut in your Medicare reimbursement. And it was a temporary uh, reimbursement cut. So – um, but of course, in the government, anything that's temporary really ends up becoming permanent. And that's what happened here is that it's been in place, you know, for, um, many years, at least eight years, I believe. And during the pandemic, uh, the, uh, the administration, uh, temporarily suspended the temporary sequestration. Yeah. So there was a temporary, uh, that was suspended temporarily. Right, exactly. Uh, and um, I, I don't even know how to say that any differently. So, uh, and which meant that you were back, so you were no, you were temporarily not having that two percent cut. Uh, on April twelfth, President Joe Biden signed HR eighteen sixty eight into law, and this legislation extended the suspension of the two percent sequestration cuts to the Medicare reimbursement through the end of the year. So what that means is that in your Medicare reimbursement, you will not see that two percent reduction in your Medicare rates uh, throughout the rest of twenty twenty one as a result of that. So uh, I know that sounded a little confusing. Again, I'll put some references in our show notes to that. And then lastly, uh, in our news, Medicare quality reporting is due in May. It is time to start making sure that you're ready for it. And uh, that'll be the focus of our second segment. We're going to talk uh, uh, quite a bit about Medicare quality reporting to remind everybody what it is and then talk through the process for doing it. Because what we have found is that many uh, centers, especially our new centers, are not aware or we're not aware of the process. And, and indeed, some things have changed. So let's take a short break. We'll come back and we'll talk about Medicare quality reporting. Thank you for being a loyal listener of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey. But did you know that you can enhance your experience and support the free podcast by becoming a patron member? Patron members have access to ASC Central, an add-on service at a very reasonable price. Patron members have access to our regular drop-in virtual meetings where you can discuss issues that you are dealing with in your ambulatory surgery center with the hosts and other members. Members also have access to valuable member resources, including a, a document library with a growing list of resources, including the rules and regulations, guides to maintaining compliance, example policies and procedures, infection control resources, example risk assessments, example committee and governing body minutes, and over 60 disaster drill scenario kits and example forms and checklists. Members also have access to some of the virtual conferences that we have presented, including the Provider Credentialing Conference, which we offered in December 2020. It's a New World Conference in 2020. Infection Control in-service to meet the challenges of COVID-19. And the ASC Mandatory Education Program, which is a valuable resource for annual education for your staff. Membership helps to defray the cost of producing the podcast, including the research staff, travel costs to conferences, equipment costs, and production costs. For more information, you may visit ASCPodcast.com. To become a member, visit ASCPodcast.com. So 
So as part of being a Medicare certified organization as an ambulatory surgery center, you are required to uh, do what we call ambulatory surgery center quality reporting. But it goes by the initials ASCQR. Um, the program is a pay-for-reporting quality data program finalized by the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Um, this many years ago. I've actually, I didn't write in our script here what year it was, but under the program, ASCs report quality of care data for standardized measures to receive the full annual update to their ASC annual payment rate. And failure to report the data can result in a loss of up to 2% of your payment update. Now, Sue, it's, it is important for, to, to note that this is, it is still voluntary, but if you don't report, you're subject to a reduction in your Medicare rate increases. It doesn't mm-hmm. actually reduce your reimbursement rate, but you wouldn't be eligible for the full increase if you don't do this Medicare okay. quality. There is no penalty at this point for poor results that you might be resu- reporting. It is really uh, a payment, shall we say, as I said, for reporting. And eventually, they will be uh, quality. the quality measures will be used for determining what your payment rates will be. So data collected through the ASCQR program is publicly reported so that people with Medicare and other consumers can find and compare the quality of care care data provided in ambulatory surgery centers. And publishing this data can improve facility performance by providing benchmarks for selected clinical areas and public view of facility data. So it's important to remember that as soon as you publish this information – uh, or when you publish this information, it's going to public. be available for the public mm-hmm. to look at. Uh, Sue, so you, you've mentioned this a couple of times that, you know, as, as uh, we've uh, encountered surgery centers that uh, we find are, are uh, lacking in certain things, it's, it's always interesting that uh, this information is available out mm-hmm. there for people to look into before they make a choice about where to, to go for care. The CMS Care Compare on the Medicare.gov website publishes information on the quality of care provided to patients. So this information is made available to inform consumers and to encourage healthcare facilities to make continued improvements in care quality. Care Compare is generally refreshed biannually for the ASCQR program. Information on public reporting can be found in section 1833. T-17E of the Social Security Act and requires that the Secretary establish procedures to make data collected under the SCQR program available to the public. Previous year's facility scores and payment adjustments results are available in the provider data catalog. So in 2021, there are six measures of the ASCQR program that are reported publicly. And we talked about this during our uh, episodes on the uh, the CMS uh, 2021 updates. Three of these measures require the ASC to actually do something. Uh, all uh, ASCs are responsible for reporting to CMS for 2021. Uh, and that, that data will be submitting through, submitted through CMS's website. And that website is at qualitynet.cms.gov backslash ASC backslash ASCQR. And we'll don't you don't have to memorize that, but we'll we'll provide a reference on our uh, uh, website for this uh, episode. The deadline for submitting ASCQR program data is May 17th, 2021, which is due to May 15th falling on a Saturday this year. So it'll be due that Monday. Due to the COVID-19 public health emergency exceptions granted, only data submissions for encounters from July 1st, 2020 through December 31st, 2020 is required. Data submission for encounters from January 1st, 2020 through June 30th, 2020, which are the accepted months, is voluntary. Accepted. Uh, we left probably out. should say left out, yeah. right? I, I was just saying that because yeah. they're using accepted with an E. C-E-P-T, <laughs> P-E-T uh, months. So just to reiterate, the only data um, required is from July 1st of 2020 through December 31st of 2020. Good. 
So let's summarize the uh, the measures, and we'll we'll start with the mandatory measures. So the mandatory measures to not be penalized in your Medicare rates. There's three of them: ASC nine, ASC thirteen, and ASC fourteen. ASC nine is endoscopy slash polyp surveillance, appropriate follow up interval for normal colonoscopy in average risk patients. And this must be reported by May 17th, 2021. So hopefully all of you have been gathering that data, if you're a GI center, of course, and you're going to report that through the QualityNet website, which we're going to talk about in a few minutes. If you are, uh, you still have to report this data, even if you're not, a, uh, don't do these procedures, you just uh, submit a zero for that. ASC 13, normal thermia, is used to assess the percentage of patients having surgical procedures under general or neuraxial anesthesia of 60 minutes or more in duration who are normal thermic within 15 minutes of arrival in the PACU. As with ASC 9, this measure only requires a sample to be reported via quality net. And again, the, the deadline is May 17th. Uh, so this has been somewhat problematic. I've noted that many centers have not been mm-hmm. doing this normothermia uh, surveillance. Yeah. Uh, and again, it only has to be done, uh, there only has to be surveilling it. Uh, of course, if you ha- didn't do it for 2020, it's too late to do that now. Um, uh, hopefully, you have been gathering that information. And mm-hmm. lastly, ASC 14 uh, is on unplanned anterior vitrectomy, and it's used to assess the percentage of cataract surgery patients who have an unplanned anterior vitrectomy. And this reporting is done also through QuadiNet, and again, the deadline is May 17, 2021. So, Sue, so you and I have talked about this, that there there have been some uh, ophthalmologists that have been so worried about this statistic mm-hmm. that they have basically said that there is no such thing as an unplanned anterior vitrectomy, and they actually, in their scheduling, put uh, potential planned. anterior yeah. vitrectomy, which is not appropriate. So, uh, you, if you are doing ophthalmology procedures, I'm sure you've been gathering this information and, uh, again, be ready to submit this on May 17th. Mm-hmm. There is one voluntary uh, measure. I don't recommend anybody really do this because of the difficulty in gathering this information, but it is called ASC-11. It's for cataract surgery and it's improvement in patient's visual function within 90 days following cataract surgery. And this remains voluntary. Please note that if you choose to participate in reporting this voluntary measure, any data reported may become publicly available in the future. So if you choose to report ASC-11, ASC-11, this data is also reported through QualityNet. And again, it's due on May 17, 2021. The problem with gathering this information is that you really don't have access to it without going back to the physician's office. Mm -hmm. You're not going to see the patient after the cataract surgery, and it would be very difficult to gather this. Uh, I'm not saying that it's not a bad idea. It's just Mm -hmm. that it's difficult for an ambulatory surgery center, and I think your time is probably better spent on other quality uh, reporting measures. Yeah, and how do you quantify that, I wonder? You know. Well, I think there's there's uh, mechanisms for determining what that's going to be. But again, you know, you're right. I mean, exactly what that is is uh-huh. uh, is probably beyond the scope of what we're into Quite on the surgery side. Uh-huh. This is something that really the physician does. There are uh, a number of measures that are reported or two measures that are reported to CMS, but not by the ambulatory surgery center. So this is important for you to realize that this information is out there. And we've talked about this. I'm sorry, there's actually three. We've talked about this in the past, uh, and especially the importance of realizing that the hospital will be reporting this data 
uh, and you should be prepared to answer for that. So ASC 12 is facility seven-day risk standardized hospital visit rate after outpatient colonoscopy. And this data is pulled from claims previously submitted by the hospital that the patient visits within seven days of the colonoscopy. CMS will make reports available to ASCs to preview before publicizing that data. There is no actual data collection or submission required to the ASC or the hospital. This is information that's pulled automatically by a computer. Then there is ASC 17, and that is uh, hospital visits after orthopedic ambulatory surgical center procedures. And data is pulled again from claims previously submitted by the hospital that the patient visits within seven days of an orthopedic procedure. CMS will also make these reports available to ASCs to preview before publicizing the data. And the last one is hospital visits after urology. Ambulatory surgical center procedures data is pulled again from claims previously submitted by the hospital that the patient visits within seven days after urological procedures. And again, they'll make these reports available to, to ASCs prior to publicizing the data. Uh, this is the first year that ASC 17 and 18 data will be publicly reported. So I guess the, the takeaway here is if you're doing colonoscopies, if you're doing um, orthopedic uh, procedures, uh, and if you're doing urological uh, procedures in the ambulatory surgery center and a patient goes into the hospital within seven days after the procedure, that information is going to be reported publicly uh, and uh, by by surgery center. So ASC 12 has always been reported publicly? It's been reported for a number of years. I okay. just don't remember exactly how many. Okay. Good question. And mm-hmm. perhaps some of our listeners will remind me. Uh, as a reminder, ASC 5, 6, and 7 were removed from the ASC Quality Reporting Program effective in 2018, and ASC 1 through ASC 4, which are those claim-based measures that used to be included on your Medicare claims, have all been suspended as of January 1, 2019. Facilities do not need to report those measures on their Medicare claims in 2021 uh, any more than they had to report them in 2020. ASC 8 has been removed from the ASC quality reporting, so facilities will not need to report on that measure in 2021 unless it is mandated by your state. And you might remember that ASC 8 is the um, flu vaccine compliance. So let's talk about how you report. To report ASC 9, 13, and 14 to QualityNet, you're going to have to use the HARP system. That's capital H, capital A, capital R, capital P. This is the HCQIS Access Roles and Profile, better known as HARP, and it is a secure identity management portal provided by the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, CMS, and creating an account via HARP provides users with a user ID and password that can be used to sign in to many CMS applications. It also provides a single location for users to modify their user profile, change their password, update their challenge question, and add and remove two-factor authentication devices. The website to sign up for HARP is harp.cms.gov, and we'll provide a link to that on our website. We're going to have a lot of links to to this (laughs) episode. And you can register, uh, well, there's another separate link from there, but if you go to harp.qualitynet.org, you'll see a link right away for registering. HARP uses Experian to remotely verify your user's identity by applying the data that a user provides, such as date of birth and social security number, to generate a list of personal questions for the user to answer to verify his or her identity. So the problem I I have with this is I I am concerned that uh, there's a lot of very personal questions that are asked of uh, as part of this. Mm -hmm. And um, I fear that some, you know, staff will be hesitant to sign up for this because Mm -hmm. they're asking personal questions that don't have to do with the the surgery center when you you set up your own user profile. (laughs) So, uh, but it is... We're going to provide links to uh, specification manuals, 
uh, as well as references for the HARP user guide and and uh, a tutorial on how to create an account, which uh, was is from YouTube. So we're going to provide you a lot of uh, links here that will help you to uh, prepare yourself for the reporting. So let's let's summarize. You uh, need to report three measures in 2020: ASC nine, which is endoscopy slash polyp surveillance. ASC 13, which is normothermia, ASC 14, unplanned anterior vitrectomy. So if you fail to report these measures uh, by May 17, 2021, you run the risk of losing uh, the uh, the update, up to 2% of the update to your Medicare rate. And in order to report these, you're going to have to go to the harp.cms.gov website to uh, set up an account or to access the system. And from there, you can do the reporting. Now, once it's, it is going to take you time to set up your account. So mm-hmm. be prepared for doing yeah. this. Do not Plan wait until the last minute. Mm-hmm. This isn't uh, signing up for uh, other access that you can do on the internet right now, like setting up a Facebook account, for example. <laughs> uh, this is going to take some time. It's going to require some verification, and you want to make sure that you have plenty of time uh, yeah. to prepare this. Uh, and also make sure that I, I would say you need to have more than one person in your organization be able to do this too in the future so mm-hmm. that if somebody does resign or leave, uh, you're going to have the ability to report this in the future. I would also make sure that uh, your governing body is is knowledgeable about what you are doing and, and that you explain to them that this information is going to become publicly available as a result of your reporting process here so that uh, they're not surprised later on. Okay, let's take a short break and we'll come back and we'll talk about upcoming events in the ASC industry. In this segment, we discuss other learning opportunities in the ASC industry. If you'd like your event to be included in the podcast, please send the event information to info at ASCpodcast.com. So the uh, ASCA 2021 is virtual again this year. It's going to be held on April 26th, May 3rd, and May 10th. It's going to be the same content I deliver uh, in person in the past, uh, but delivered virtually. And they, we certainly hope to get back in person soon. This is uh, this is kind of uh, difficult to do mm-hmm. because those conferences are so important for the industry. So for more information, visit ASCassociation.org. Georgia Society of Ambulatory Surgery Centers and the South Carolina Ambulatory Surgical Association's Joint Semiannual Conference and Trade Show will be May 12th and 13th, 2021 at the Western Atlanta Perimeter North in Atlanta, Georgia. And the New Jersey Association of Ambulatory Surgery Center's 11th virtual annual ASC conference is May 12th. Um, John will be the keynote speaker on May 12th, talking about 30 years in the trenches. For more information, visit njaasc.org. 30 years in the trenches. I, I can't I know, wait to hear what I'm going to really speak old. about. <laughs> <laughs> I know. <laughs> I am old, but uh, I, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. It'll be kind yeah. of a fun, uh, fun session here, I mm-hmm. think, or I'm, I'm hoping to make it fun. So definitely uh, plan on attending that, even if you're not from New Jersey, by the way. Uh, you certainly are invited to sign up at that, at that website. Mm-hmm. And the New York Association of Ambulatory Surgery Center Spring Virtual Conference will be held on two half days on June 10th and 11th. Uh, that's going to be managed out of our studio here in Rochester. And uh, for more information, uh, visit nysaasc.org. The Arizona Ambulatory Surgery Center Association's annual conference and exhibits June 24th and 25th, 2021 at JW Marriott Camelback Inn in Scottsdale, Arizona. 
The Florida Society of Ambulatory Surgical Centers Annual Conference and Trade Show will be July 14th through the 16th, 2021, at the Hilton Orlando Bonnet Creek in Orlando. The AORN Expo 2021 is August 7th through the 10th at Orange County Convention Center in Orlando, Florida. And we got to try to get ourselves invited to that, you know, Sue, <laughs> uh, just to get in person again. Actually, mm-hmm. I don't think we can do that. I think we have something else going on those dates, but definitely important to uh, to try to go out and support all these organizations. Yeah. The California Ambulatory Surgery Association's 2021 annual meeting is September 8th through the 10th, 2021, at the Hyatt Regency Huntington Beach Resort and Spa in Huntington Beach, California. And we are on the way already. I mm-hmm. haven't made the <laughs> Reservations, but we're definitely we're heading going. out there. The Illinois Ambulatory Surgery Center Association's annual meeting is on September 22nd, 2021 at, at the Sheraton Lyle Naperville Hotel in Lyle, Illinois. And this is exciting because this is all in capital letters on the website. The New York State Association of Ambulatory Surgery Centers live and in-person yep. Roaring Twenties Conference will be held at the Sleepy Hollow Hotel and Conference Center in Terrytown, New York. For more information, visit nysaasc.org. And I actually am very much involved in this. We have uh, we have visited the site. Uh, we're already coming up with plans. Mm-hmm. So, so they came up with this theme of the Roaring Twenties. I, I can't <laughs> wait for it. But uh, they figured uh, if we're going to bring everybody back, we're going to have a heck of a party mm-hmm. uh, to celebrate that. So. Any idea on the timing of that? Oh, <laughs> it is September 29th and 30th. Okay. <laughs> thought maybe it's still to be determined. Okay. <laughs> uh, the Washington Ambulatory Surgery Center Association's annual education conference and trade show is November 4th through 5th at the Tulalip Resort and Spa in Tulalip, Washington. And the Pennsylvania Ambulatory Surgery Association's annual meeting is November 8th, 2021 at the Hershey Lodge in Hershey, Pennsylvania. <laughs> And I do want to remind everybody of two upcoming uh, conferences uh, sponsored by the ASC podcast with John Gailey, the ASC Director of Nursing Boot Camp, which is comprehensive training for nursing directors from the nation's leading ASC experts. This includes individual mentoring and a four-day virtual conference May 25th through the 28th, 2021. And we also have the ASC Administrators Boot Camp, which is comprehensive training for ambulatory surgery center administrators from the nation's leading ASC experts. And that's going to be a virtual conference on August 17th through the 20th, 2021. Both of those conferences are selling out quickly. So go to ASCpodcast.com for more information. That's it for this episode of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey. Join us again, and please consider becoming a patron by going to our website at ASCpodcast.com and spread the word about our podcast with your friends and colleagues, and please do us the honor of hitting the subscribe button. The sound editor for this episode is Susan Cronkite. Executive producer is John Gailey. Research assistance is provided by that incredible team at AHS, including Susan Cronkite, Jenna Alvarez, who is back from maternity leave now, <laughs> uh, Judy D'Ambrosio, Alex Borneman, Zach Calritis, and Lori Rodericks. Music is provided by Media Sushi and Mike Noah. And the ASC Podcast with John Gailey is hosted on Podbean and is available on all major podcast channels. We would like to thank our sponsor, Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies, the nation's leading regulatory compliance resource for ambulatory surgery centers. For more information about their services, please visit ah-strategies.com, email them at info at ah-strategies.com, or call John Gailey directly at 585-594-1167. This podcast is an educational and operational tool and is not intended to be a comprehensive resource for all rules, regulations, and standards that an ambulatory surgery center must meet. 
The advice provided should not be considered as nor does it constitute legal advice or opinion. When reviewing specific situations involving legal and regulatory issues, attorneys and other professionals should be consulted. This has been a production of Eden Group Development. All rights are reserved. If you're interested in advertising or sponsoring the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, please email us at info at ASCPodcast.com. We would love to hear your comments and questions. Please email us at comments at ASCPodcast.com. <laughs>